some very so so some very revealing text messages were revealed today in court. Washington Post has a really good article dealing with this, and also a couple of good articles from um, NBC News that I was looking at today. Racist slurs, violent messages, how Ahmaud Arbery's killers talked about black people. Racist slurs, violent messages, how Ahmaud Arbery's killers talked about black people. Okay, we're going to uh, dig into this today. And as we, you know, this is a really, really important topic also, because as we see uh, an attack on African-American History Month, as we see more um, anti-critical race theory uh, bills being passed in various uh, states being pushed by Republicans, okay, and, and when we look at uh, studies like the one that uh, I talked about uh, a couple of days ago from uh, Time Magazine that deals with how uh, a new report finds that 45 states are failing to teach the history of Reconstruction. 45 states are failing, 45 states out of 50 are failing to uh, teach students about the period that shaped race relations after the Civil War known as Reconstruction. Okay, so when we hear stories about attacks on critical race theory, books being banned, things like this, books dealing with the Civil Rights Movement and um, African-American issues, African-American history, et cetera, when we hear about things like this being banned, okay, then we really have to ask the question, then we really have to ask the question, okay, what's really going on? So we're gonna talk about uh, uh, what took place in court today, day number two. And it revealed some things that we already knew. Now we know in the trial uh, of the two men that took place at the state level, we know that um, race was not brought up as much of an issue by the prosecution, but this, but this is center here in this hate crime uh, trial. Okay, and one of the uh, one of the three men convicted on Arbery did not want his daughter to date a black man, and called him the N word in a text message, according to the FBI. Another shared a meme that claimed white Irish slave uh, white Irish slaves were treated worse than any other race in the U.S. The third man, Travis McMichael, who fatally shot Ahmaud Arbery February uh, February twenty third, twenty twenty, spoke about killing black people, and wrote in a message that he loved his job because zero n words worked with me. He loved his job because zero n words worked with me. So this is just a uh, um, further validation of what we suspected of these three men. Uh, two of them were armed, Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael, the father. William Roddy Bryan wasn't armed, but he called, uh, according to an FBI agent, called his daughter's boyfriend the N-word because his daughter, his daughter is dating an African-American man. We're going to get deep into this today. And then uh, yesterday we talked about 
Shikari Richardson's um, allegations of a double standard when it comes to Camilla, uh, Camilla Valieva uh, being allowed to compete after a uh, after she failed a drug test for a banned substance. Well, the IOC, the um, International Olympic Committee, is speaking out, uh, responding to uh, Shikari Richardson's allegations. And they, they say that uh, it's not a double standard and there's very little similarity between the two uh, between the two cases. OK, Yahoo News has this piece picked up by the independent independent.co.uk. We're going to talk about this some as well. They talked about it this morning on uh, the Black News Channel. Start your day. Uh, IOC hit back at Sh uh, Shikari Richardson criticism of Camilla Valieva decision. All right. So we'll talk some about this as well. Uh, now, the, 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 uh, Shikari is correct. Now, there are there are some differences in this case beyond race. There are some slight differences and it's a different committee that's involved. It's the IOC, the, the International Olympic Committee that uh, is allowing uh, Camilla Valieva to uh, compete where it was the um, the uh, U.S. and open agency. Uh, the, the U.S. Olympic uh, Agency that uh, banned uh, Shikari Richardson. So you're dealing with two different agencies, okay? And it was based upon U.S. anti-doping agency rules. But we'll talk about this some more. Uh, we'll talk about this some more on today's show. All right. And then we know that February 7th, February 7th was the anniversary of the first African-American, the first Negro History Week taking place in 1926, February 7th, 1926, the second week in February, and uh, created by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. So we'll talk a little bit about that history and we'll give you a preview of the 10-week online class that I teach on Saturdays from the Civil War, I mean, uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you at school. All right, now on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow the people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or a woman's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can register for the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, each day, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time each day. And on uh, Saturdays, it is ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Next class is Saturday, February 19th. And on um, Sundays, it is uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Next class is Saturday, uh, is Sunday, February 20th. All right, so if we look at uh, this piece here from the, I'm going to go to the uh, Washington Post. 
for this story. Very interesting article from the Washington Post. We're coming up on a break. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. 313-778-7600 is the call in number. If you have a question or comment, you listen to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation, WFDF. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me. She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, and we are live calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. Okay, so right before the break, um, I started talking about what happened in uh, court today in day two of the hate crime trial of the three white men who were convicted in the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Okay. Um, Travis McMichael, Greg, Greg McMichael, and William Bryant. So Washington Post has a, has a really good article here. Um, racist, uh, racist slurs, violent messages, uh, how Arbery's killers talked about black people. Okay. And let me try to reduce the size of this here. Okay, racist slurs, violent messages, how Arbery's killers talked about black people. So this is from um, Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, from the Washington Post. Uh, so it goes on to say, now, Travis McMichael, who actually uh, fired the shots that killed Ahmaud Arbery, Travis McMichael uh, spoke about the killing uh, 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 Travis and Michael shared a meme that claimed, um, well, I'm sorry, one of them shared a meme that claimed white Irish slaves were treated worse than any other race in, in the U.S. And then Travis and Michael, who fairly shot Ahmaud Arbery, spoke about killing black people and wrote in a message that he loved his job because zero N-words worked with me. He, he went on to say, we used to walk around committing hate crimes all day, quote unquote. He wrote in another text conversation a few months before uh, he killed Ahmaud Arbery. Now, the second day of testimony, the federal hate crimes trial over the death of Ahmaud Arbery happened on Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, with an, FBI, with an FBI analyst detailing dozens of racist social media posts and 
and messages allegedly sent by the three men who chased and killed Ahmad Arbery in the coastal Georgia neighborhood of uh, Satilla Shores in Fe February 23rd, 2020. And let me increase the size uh, as well here. All right. Now, uh, prosecutors are seeking to prove that uh, Travis McMichael, his father, Greg McMichael, and the, and the neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, attacked Ahmaud Arbery out of racial bias, out of racial bias. The men have said they suspected Ahmaud Arbery of wrongdoing, even though they had no evidence to prove that. All of them were convicted of murder last fall and sentenced to life in prison with William Bryan eligible for, for parole after 30 years. Now, their murder trial uh, in state court, state of Georgia state court, before a nearly all white jury avoided direct allegations of racism, avoided direct allegations of racism. The federal trial, which is taking place now, in contrast, focuses squarely on whether the McMichaels and William Bryan targeted Ahmaud Arbery because he's African-American. Now, Ahmaud Arbery's death helped spark nationwide social justice protests, along with the police killings of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, and George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Of the three slayings, of the three killings, only Ahmad Arbery's has resulted in federal hate crime charges, raising the stakes for federal prosecutors. Um, now, Shan Wu, a former federal prosecutor, said, quote, this is the kind of case you really need to do to send the message that the Justice Department won't tolerate this type of racist hatred that results in violence. This is the kind of case you really need to do to send the message that the Department of Justice, the Justice Department, won't tolerate this type of racist hatred that results in violence. Now, legal experts, now this is what's really important here. How do you prove uh, being able to prove the case? They don't have to, they, they're not trying to prove that these three men killed Ahmaud Arbery, okay? They have to prove motive. We already know they killed him. Legal experts have emphasized that prosecutors cannot win a conviction merely by proving the defendants are racist. And, and they can't convict, and, and we already know they killed him. So they're not trying to prove that these men killed him out of there. Legal experts have emphasized that prosecutors cannot win a conviction merely by proving that the defendants are racist. They must show the jury, okay, and prove beyond a reasonable doubt, they must show the jury something more specific that bias toward people led the McMichaels and William Bryan to act, okay? They, they must show the jury that bias toward uh they must show the jury something more specific that bias toward African-Americans led them at Michaels and William Bryan to act. Not that they actually killed 
uh, Ahmad Arbery, or that they are racist and sent these text messages. They have to be able to prove motive, okay? That the motive was racial. Now, uh, uh, Avlana Eisenberg, a Florida State University law professor who has researched hate crime prosecutions, said in an interview, quote, the most compelling pieces of evidence will all, the most compelling pieces of evidence will always be those that are most directly tied to the incident at hand. The most compelling pieces of evidence will always be those that are most directly tied to the incident um, at hand. Now, Ablana Eisenberg, a, a Florida State University law professor who has researched hate crime prosecution, said this in an interview. She noted that proving motive can be challenging, but also warned that acquittals in the hate crimes cases, that acquittals in hate crimes cases would deepen a disconnect between official findings and the court of public opinion. Now, uh, I want to go to some of the text messages. We're coming up here on the break. If we go to page two of this article. So on Wednesday, uh, uh, intelligence analyst uh, Amy Vaughn testified about Gator's review of the defendant's phone messages and social media posts. And if we go to this here, I think this is... Let's back up here. All right, so she spent most of her uh, time on Travis McMichael, who was 36 years old, who was the one who actually shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery. She spent most of her time on Travis McMichael, and she walked the jury through a litany of conversations in which Travis McMichael denigrated African Americans, often while calling them N-word often while calling them the N-word. Travis McMichael's son associated African-Americans with criminality. He spoke explicitly about committing violence against African-Americans. And he blamed African-Americans uh, when he struggled to get a commercial driver's license, accusing them of, quote, unquote, running the show accusing them of running the show. So Travis McMichael, the son, shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, chased him down for five minutes, shot him with a, shot, uh, with a shotgun, associated African-Americans with criminality, but you're the one that committed the crime. You're the one that committed murder. He spoke explicitly about them committing violence, but you shot and killed an unarmed man. You shot, you chased down an unarmed man for five minutes and shot and killed him and you had no evidence he committed any crimes. And, and, and you talk about African-Americans committing violence. And he blamed them when he struggled to get a commercial driver's license, accusing them of running the show. But Ahmaud Arbery was running away from you and you kept chasing him. You just couldn't leave well enough alone. Time to think about that now. Congressman Michael commented on a video 
that showed a group of mostly African-American teenagers attacking a white teenager. Travis McMichael reportedly said, quote, I say shoot all of them, end quote. He also appeared to advocate running over protesters in response to a video of a car hitting an African-American woman. When someone sent Travis McMichael a video in which an African-American man plays a prank on a white man, he used a racial epithet in saying he would kill the prankster. All right, we're coming up on a break. We'll be back in a few minutes, and then we'll also talk about the IOC responding to Shakira Richardson's allegations of um, a double standard. We'll talk about February 7th, 1926. Dr. Carter G. Woodson launched the first Negro History Week, second week in February. And I'll give you a preview of the online class I'm teaching this weekend, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Listen to the African History Network show on Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995, and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008, and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021, and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human, were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis' books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. iRedify is a black-owned digital platform that showcases black and brown cultures and people. The books on the platform are written by African-American authors, Afro-Caribbean authors, African authors, and so much more. Kids 14 and under can read eBooks, listen to audiobooks, and complete learning activities. Kids can even write in the books digitally. Get unlimited access to everything on the platform for only $8.99 a month at iRedify.com. Sign up for your membership today. Economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Unfortunately, many people confuse what racism is. Racism is a power structure. It was laws and policies that put us in this predicament. It's going to be laws and policies that take us out. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do what teach what it doesn't know. We have it all on 910 AM Superstation. 910, the Superstation, the oldest radio station in town since 1922. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation. Future Radio, I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, February 16th, uh, 2022, and we are live. Okay, call the numbers 313-778-7600. 
7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Uh, I'm going to send you this. Uh, I'm going to see this clip here, Shakira. Uh, I'm having some problems here with uh, uh, Microsoft Word. It's not giving me the um, titles and, and things like this in the uh, subject matter for uh, today's show. But I'm going to send you clip number one here. This is from NBC News. So cue that up because we're, we're, we're about to go to that. Hold on just a second here. All right. Um, Okay, I'm going to send this to you now. All right, so uh, right before the break, we were talking about the uh, second day of the hate crime trial of the three white men who were convicted of killing uh, Ahmaud Arbery. And this is a hate crime. This is a uh, federal hate crimes trial to uh, convict them of federal hate crimes and to show that uh, they killed uh, Ahmaud Arbery because he was African-American. It was racially motivated. So if you go back to this uh, article here from uh, the Washington Post, racist slurs, violent messages, how Arbery's killers talked about black people. It goes on to say, so it, it deals with messages from all three of the men. Okay, deals with messages from all three of the men. So when we look at uh, William Bryan, 52 years old, who, who was not armed, he was the only one who was not armed. Um, FBI analyst, uh, FBI intelligence analyst Amy Vaughn testified that text messages showed that William Bryan uh, show William Bryan's running joke with a friend about serving as grand marshal of a parade on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. A running joke with a friend of his of serving as grand marshal of a parade on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. He said, quote, I think the joke is that uh, she said, I think the joke is that he would never do that, she told the jury. While texting about the federal holiday, FBI intelligence analyst Amy Vaughn added that William Bryan referenced uh, to black people using multiple racial slurs and referenced a quote-unquote monkey parade and re referenced a quote-unquote monkey parade. Now, four days before Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed, the prosecutor said William Bryan used the N-word to refer to, to his daughter's boyfriend, who was black. Four days before, William Bryan helped Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael hunt down Ahmaud Arbery, and Travis McMichael killed him. William Bryan who said he was just a bystander, used the N-word to refer to his daughter's boyfriend because his daughter's boyfriend is African-American. In another text conversation, the same day, someone passed on a message from William Bryan's daughter. His daughter, and I don't think I know, I don't think I saw her age, but his daughter said, quote, yes, he's black, honestly it's just a color end quote she said according to the message read in court quote she went on to say 
it doesn't define him or make him love me any less, end quote. It doesn't define him or make me love him any less, end quote. Referring to a boyfriend. She's, she's saying, what does that have to do with it, his color? Now, Greg McMichael was less active than his son on Facebook. Uh, FBI intelligence analyst Amy Vaughn said, and law enforcement and law enforcement agents were unable to break through the encryption on his phone to see his messages. But they gleaned some information from online backups of the device. We're going to that, that clip from uh, NBC News in just a second, Shakita. But they gleaned some information from online backups on the device and found the elder McMichael, Greg McMichael, the father, sometimes posted memes on Facebook, including the one that said white Irish slaves were treated worse than other enslaved groups, which is, a, which is not true. Quote, when, when was the last time you heard an Irish being, uh, 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 using the B word, about how the world owes them a living, the meme continued, according to FBI intelligence analyst Amy Vaughn. Now, members of the jury, okay, there are eight white jurors, three African-American jurors and one Hispanic juror, 12 jurors, eight white, three African-American, one Hispanic. Members of the jury leaned forward and watched intently as the evidence was presented. Lee Michael, Travis, Travis McMichael's mother, Lee Michael, Travis McMichael's mother, and and Greg and uh, Greg McMichael's wife sat in 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 the courtroom without a visible reaction. Now I wonder if it's because she's heard all this before. I don't know it, but I'm just saying. You know, if 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 you heard if you heard your son say things, well, let me put it like this, okay? If you didn't hold the same views as your son towards African-Americans. I mean, don't you think you'd show some emotion or be shocked or something like that by hearing these text messages that uh, exhibit racial hatred towards African-Americans and they're attributed to your son? But if you're used to that, or that's how you think also, I'm not saying she thinks that way, but hypothetically, if she does, then she wouldn't be surprised. So, um, all right, I want to go to uh, clip number one here. This is from uh, NBC News. This is about what happened on day one of the uh, hate crimes trial. Day one started Tuesday, February 15, 2022. Let's go to uh, clip number one, Shakita. Day of testimony in the federal hate crimes trial. We heard from three witnesses this morning. Two of them are neighbors down in the Satilla Shores neighborhood. And the third was a crime scene investigator, somebody who got to the scene right after Ahmaud Arbery was shot back in February of 2020. But really, the main theme of this case, the thing that's already come to the forefront, 
is race. We heard from the prosecution in opening statements lay out the government's trial, and she very quickly brought out uh, some very specific things that she says uh, all three of the defendants said or messaged or texted to other people that use racial slurs. In one instance, she uh, says that one of them went on a rant about black people, saying black people are nothing but trouble. Now, all of these were not specifically about Ahmaud Arbery, but she says that they give insight into a window into their mindset, essentially, that she says means that they made an assumption about Arbery the day they saw him running, and that because of his skin color, because he was a black man, that's what led them to chase him down and ultimately kill him. Now, for the defense's side, in three separate opening statements, defense attorneys say, you know what, there's no excuse for this reprehensible language. It's not good. There's no defending that. But they say that it does not mean, it does not prove that their clients targeted Arbery because of race. Rather, they say they were motivated by their concern over crime in the area. Now, this is certainly going to be a major case to watch because, you know, Ahmaud Arbery's name, along with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, those were the three high-profile deaths that sparked so many of the protests we saw in 2020. But this is the very first time that race has actually come to the forefront of any of the legal proceedings. Now, while it is difficult to prove intent, according to a number of legal experts, it certainly is sending a message as to what it could mean for future cases like this in the future. All right. Harold? Pause right there. Pause right there. Okay. Okay. So that's from um, a good clip from NBC News. That is dealing with day one in the uh, hate crime trial. Uh, read this piece also from um, NBC News from today. Ahmad Arbery's killers, hate crime trial, prosecutors share the men's messages, social media posts. Prosecutors hope to convince the jury that Ahmad Arbery's murder was an act of racial hostility by the white men who publicly shared their disdain of black people, who publicly shared their disdain for black people. Okay. Interesting this um interesting that this murder took place in Georgia, and they concocted the excuse after they killed Ahmad Arbery that they were trying to effectuate a uh, citizen's arrest and they used the 1863 citizen's arrest law that was started out as a fugitive slave law in 1863 targeting fugitive runaway slaves running away from uh, plantations in Georgia uh, and this law came into existence when Georgia was part of the Confederacy and the law was created to target runaway slaves who were running away from Georgia plantations and running behind union lines. Okay. And, and this is the, this is the origin of that citizens arrest law that they cited after the fact, because when po police arrived on the scene, they didn't say they were trying to fetch the citizens arrest. Read this article from fast company. We're coming up on a break fastcompany.com. The troubling history of citizens arrests, from slave patrols to Ahmad Arbery to ICE, I-C-E, ICE. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation WFDF. When we come back, we'll give an update on, on Shakari Richardson. The IOC is responding to Shakari Richardson, and they're saying, no, there's no double standard here. You're hallucinating. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. 910 AM Superstation WFDF on Michael M. Hotel, the African History Network show. Abundant Capital Group is a real estate investment company with over 20 years of experience in real estate. They specialize in two areas of real estate. One, 
They solve real estate problems with creative financing solutions that give the seller the most money for their property. And two, they show individuals how to get a higher rate of return on their investment capital with Real Estate Note Investor. If you are looking to sell or need to sell your property, here is what they provide. Market value offer, even if you have little or no equity, they typically pay all closing costs, which can be thousands of dollars. They close on a date of the seller's choosing and the seller does not have to be out of the house at the time of closing. They take the property in an as is condition and the seller is not required to make any repairs. Give them a call or email them today for a free consultation and see how they can help you with your real estate needs. Call them at 973-475-8488. That's 973-475-8488. Visit their website, AbundantCapitalGroup.com. That's AbundantCapitalGroup.com. And email them at ACG at AbundantCapitalGroup.com. Follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Abundant Capital Group. Mental health and well-being have long been a taboo subject in the so-called African-American community. So I enlisted the help of mental health experts, thought leaders, and activists to help kill the ghost of Willie Lynch and heal from post-traumatic slave syndrome. We experience trauma a lot of times um, on a subconscious level. So sometimes something happens to us and we know that is traumatizing, but we don't really recognize the extent of the trauma. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, and we are live. Okay, um, Shakita, I just sent you clip number two. Cue that up. We're coming to that in just a second here uh, from the Black News Channel. So the IOC is responding uh, to uh, Shakari Richardson. Um there's a couple of articles here from uh, Yahoo News. Um, Shikari Richardson, IOC hit back at uh, Shikari Richardson. Let me pull this up here. IOC hit back at Shikari Richardson criticism uh, of Camila Valieva uh, decision. All right. And this uh, came out um, early Wednesday. And it's uh, more hypocrisy and it kind of it kind of goes more to a cover up for the IOC not to see a double sit here okay so you have this article here and then also you have um uh another one from uh Yahoo News and this one was from uh who was this one from let me see uh this is from Yahoo Sports um not a great deal of similarity between Shakai Richardson and Valieva uh, cases. This second here. And the second one is more detailed than the first one. Uh, we're going to talk about this on the other side of this clip. I want to go to uh, the Black News Channel and uh, Sharon's um, a discussion she had with Amisha Cross and uh, Candace Kelly. And I know both Amisha and Candace were passing some time together on uh, Roland Martin unfiltered. Let's go to clip number two, Shakita. Karen's table. Shakari Richardson, we know her. 
we love her. She's feisty. She's made some mistakes and owned them. Sprinter was banned from the summer games because of a positive marijuana test. And then there, there comes this young lady, right? Russia's Camila Valiva. Uh, maybe I'm saying it right. She's set to win gold at the Winter Olympics. She's been allowed to compete despite testing positive for a banned substance last month, one that we should add reportedly helps one's endurance. If you're healthy and you take this heart medication, it can help your endurance. I don't know what weed does to uh, an American sprinter. I, I don't think it it makes her faster, but, you know. Um, but So, Brittany, let's, let's go there. Um, the Russian skaters, age 16, allowed to compete, well, 15. Um, mistakes happen. She's a minor. I'm hearing all kinds of apologies for her and yeah she she is a minor and i wonder how you feel about the double standard because she very rich and called it out and said the only difference is i'm uh, i'm a black girl that is, in fact, the only difference. And let's remember that Sha'Carri Richardson used weed because she found out uh, kind of haphazardly that her mother uh, had passed away while she was in the middle of competition. And I found that even within our communities, there was a stunning lack of sympathy for that. We doubled down on saying she needs to own her mistake. You know, she needs to own mm -hmm. this. And then you have this young white girl. Part of it is about this sort of narrative of, of femininity that's also being touted, right? That we don't ever see white girls as skirting the line, that their femininity gives them the benefit of the doubt, makes them seem more honest. Their white skin also gives them the benefit of the doubt. Black girls show up with a little bit of swag. You know, Sha'Carri is not humble. Uh, she is, you know, very feisty and forthcoming, which I love. Uh, and so there was a desire to humble her, a desire to figure out the thing that was wrong with her. And so she is absolutely right to mm -hmm. argue that this is racialized uh, and, that, and, and, and for us, we need to see that double standard uh, and, and recognize that she deserves our sympathy and that the point you made is absolutely important. Weed is not a performance enhancing drug. And none of us believe, including Chinese officials that let this girl get away with this, that she <laughs> accidentally took her granddaddy's medicine. Nobody believes that. And so the question, yeah. it's not an incredible story. So the question becomes, why is she being allowed to get away with this mistake? And, in, and, and how do we continue to normalize white mistakes when they're so clear, clearly criminal? So clearly, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, and the stereotype is real because we're seeing an image, another one, of a, a white girl who needs to be rescued. I want you to listen to what the International Olympic Committee had to say about the case. They're trying to explain it. In terms of Ms. Richardson's case, I mean, she tested positive on the 19th of June, quite a way ahead of the Games. The results came uh, in early order for USADA to deal with the case on time before the Games. Ms. Richardson accepted a one-month period of ineligibility, which began on June the 28th. So I would suggest that there isn't a great deal of similarity between the two cases. He can suggest it all he wants, but we know what our eyes see, Misha. It's clearly a double standard here, yes? It's absolutely a double standard, and IOC isn't helping itself. One, this is the same IOC that ruled that Russia had its own mainstream doping incident just a couple of Olympic seasons ago, which disqualified a majority of their Olympians. So we know that they, mm -hmm. that they as a nation have an issue as it relates to um, trying to get kids in the Olympics, trying to ensure that they have winning athletes. There is a clause within the within the IOC, particularly around age. So I do think that her being 15 actually plays a role in this. 
does anybody actually believe the story that was concocted about her taking her grandfather's angina medicine on accident? Absolutely not. But I don't think that a 15-year-old came up with that story. Again, this is very much devised by the Russian Olympic executives who have decided that this is what they're going to do for their athletes. We also need to dig deeper because I would assume, looking at this, that there are possibly more athletes or more that are coming up through, through the ranks um, who are in this group division who would be utilizing the same thing. Because I think that this goes further into what Russia is doing as, as it relates to doping and how they see their advantage in the Olympics. With that being said, of course this looks horrible on its face. Racial discrimination, mm -hmm. we also can acknowledge that the drug that was found in this young girl's system is a performance-enhancing drug. That is very different than what um, Shakari's situation was. Weed is not a performance-enhancing drug, never has been, never will be. If anything, it will slow you down. Uh, it will hey, definitely not going to make her faster. Pause, pause right there, With that being said, if someone right who also there. lost my mom at the same age Shakari lost hers, pause right if there. you are in that vein and you have to get up and you have to perform day in and day out, your reaction is going to be different. Hey, I think that's the clip. A, Stop the clip. Thank you. So, as we talked about on yesterday's show and actually looked at the U.S. Anti Doping Agency's policies, yes, they do classify marijuana as a performance enhancer. I sure wish people would read. I, I love Amisha and Candace, but I wish people would read the, read the policies from the Anti Doping Agency as well as the World Anti Doping Agency. Yes, marijuana can be a performance enhancer for some athletes. And the reason why, as we stated on yesterday's show, is because it can, for, for uh, athletes who suffer from anxiety, who are anxious, it can calm them down to allow them to perform better. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency does say that marijuana can be a performance enhancer uh, for some athletes. And this is another reason why it's on the banned list. Okay, we're out of time here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. Those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep going for a few more minutes, and we'll talk about Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Also give you a preview of uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. The online class that I teach on Saturdays. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Also, if you'd like to stop for information, you can support the African History Network. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App and through PayPal. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. Right now, it's correct. Wrong behavior is not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Stand by. All right. Um, let me pull this up here. Just a second, because I hear people keep repeating this nonsense saying marijuana is not a performance enhancing drug. First thing you want to do is like actually look at the rules um, that govern the sport. That's not what the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency says or the World Anti-Doping Agency. Um, if you go back to this article, and we dealt with this yesterday, and I dealt with this um, in depth back in early July, like July 2nd, July 3rd, when uh, Shikari was suspended and she was suspended by uh, the U.S. Olympics. Uh, it was a violation of the um, U.S. anti-doping agency rules as opposed to the IOC, uh, the International uh, Olympic uh, Committee. So if we look at this here for a quick minute, this article here, 
how Shikari Richardson's Olympic suspension differs from Michael Phelps' 2009 suspension. This is from July 5th, uh, 2021. And on page two or page three, or actually page four, what is the Olympic policy on cannabis? We scroll down and look at this. Uh, what is the Olympic policy on cannabis? If I could close out this video here. Okay. And then, okay, according to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, marijuana is prohibited by the World Anti-Doping Agency, a foundation created by the International Olympic Committee in competition. Unless an athlete has an approved therapeutic use exemption, the TUE, use of the drug can result in an anti-doping rule violation and sanction. Marijuana is considered a... Uh, health risk, a marijuana is considered a health risk, a performance enhancing substance, and a violation of the spirit of the sport. Marijuana is considered a health risk, a performance enhancing substance, and a violation of the spirit of the sport. USADA, U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, adheres to the World Anti-Doping Code, the World Anti-Doping Agency's Code. Then you go and you look here. Uh, it is right in is advisory. Uh, can this right here? Advisory USA USADA advisory to athletes. Athlete advisory key changes to the world anti-doping. Uh, let's go back over here. To new violation, let me see, substance abuse. Oh, it's the, it's the first one that I wanted. Uh, let's go back to the article here. You can click on, okay, and it goes right, I think it's right here. According to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, then it takes you to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency's website, and it gives you the policies on marijuana, frequently asked questions regarding marijuana. Uh, it has questions, what are cannab uh, cannabinoids, breaks all this down, appetite. Then uh, why are cannabinoids on the prohibited list? Why are cannabinoids on the WADA prohibited list, World Anti-Doping Agency prohibited list? For something to be added to the WADA prohibited list, it must meet two of the three inclusion criteria. It must meet two of the three inclusion criteria. A, it poses a health risk to athletes. B, it has the potential to enhance performance. And C, it violates the spirit of the sport. Um,
Two, based on current animal and human studies, as well as on interviews with athletes and information from the field, cannabis can be performance enhancing for some athletes, not all athletes, for some athletes and some sports. When you go read this more, because I went and dug deep into this in July when she was suspended to actually understand the, the U.S. anti-doping agency's policies, their guidelines, so I would know what the hell I was talking about when I came on the air and talked to you. They talk about how for some athletes who may suffer from anxiety, using marijuana before competition or using cannabis before competition can calm them down so they can perform better. But it doesn't say it's a performance enhancer for all athletes in regarding all sports. But for it to be banned, once again, it just has to meet two of the three criteria. And they talk about how it poses a health risk. One, athletes who, who smoke cannabis or spice in competition potentially endanger themselves and others because of increased risk taking, slower reaction times, and poor executive function or decision making. Now, the risk can vary based upon the sport. Okay, the risk can vary based upon the sport. Think about if you're in competition on, um, say, uh, bicycling, and you veer off into somebody's lane and knock somebody over and they go into somebody else and you cause a pileup. But now if you're doing a pole vault and it's just you, or uh, like you're doing a pole vault and it's just you, you may injure yourself, but the chances of you injuring other people are much less. Two, based on current animal and human studies, as well as on interviews with athletes and information from the field, cannabis can be performance enhancing for some athletes and sports disciplines. Three, use of illicit drugs that are harmful to health and that may have performance enhancing properties is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world. So it just has to meet two of the three criteria. So read this, why are cannabinoids on the World Anti-Doping Agency prohibited list? And that's at the, um, once again, if you've been watching this show, you know, we went through deep into this in July, early July, when Shakira Richardson was uh, banned from the Olympics. USADA.org, USADA.org. We'll post a link here. So all the, um, uh, all of the uh, athletes know the rules, okay? These are not opinions, uh, Silver Star. This is coming from the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. You go read it yourself. Proper documentation ends all conversation. All right, now, and once again, as I said back in July, uh, on appeal, because Shikari appealed the decision, I said all things considered on appeal, they should let her compete in the 100 meter. I understand not competing in the relay, 
because they told the women who were going to be on the relay team that they were going to be on the team that they made the team. They told them before Shakira Richardson's positive test results came back for the drug test. So if they already told four women that you're going to be on the relay team, okay, then they're not going to, uh, then they're not going to then go and tell one of them, well, we told you you made the team, but we're going to take your slot and give it to Shikari because she failed a drug test and we want to do something good for her. They're not going to do that. So I understand her not being on the relay team, but all things considered, and because she uh, admitted what happened, she entered into a drug counseling program. This is why she only got a one-month suspension as opposed to a three-month suspension suspension because she could have gotten a three-month suspension like michael phelps got michael phelps got a three-month suspension okay and that's why it's important to read uh so you can read the rest of this article here from uh sportingnews.com okay silver star was talking uh to somebody else all right how Shakari Richardson's Olympic suspension differs from Michael Phelps' 2009 suspension. Because remember, Michael Phelps didn't test positive for marijuana. Six months after he competed in the 2008 Olympics, um, he was seen at a party, a picture was taken of him smoking marijuana in a bong. Okay, he was suspended for three months, but that was after he had already competed in the Olympics. He never tested positive for marijuana prior to an Olympic competition. Read this here from sportingnews.com. There's really, really good information in it. But we went through this extensively back in uh, July of 2021. Now, if you look at, uh, okay, and then this one here. So I was watching the uh, Mark Adams, IOC spokesman Mark Adams. I was watching uh, and reading the comments from him and his comments were, were like really insensitive to um, the double standard. It's like, I mean, Stevie Wonder can see the double standard here. Read this article from Yahoo News, uh, sport, Yahoo News Sports, Yahoo Sports. Not a great deal of, quote unquote, not a great deal of similarity. They're quoting Mark Adams, spokesman for uh, the International Olympics uh, Commission. And between Shakira Richardson and Valeva uh, cases. This is by Jay Busby for uh, Yahoo Sports. And it goes in, let me see. Now, also something that's interesting, and this came out yesterday, but I didn't get a chance to talk about it. Uh, there are two other substances that uh, Camila has tested positive for that are for, that give you more endurance, but they're not banned substances. So there's three substances she's tested positive for. One is banned, two are not. But they all they all deal with uh, enhancing your endurance. And there's a there's a piece from um, New York Times 
dealing with this. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to get to the article yesterday from the New York Times that talks about this because we had we had so much um, on yesterday's show. But there was an article from the New York Times that I read dealing with this also. Um, which one is that? Uh, Shakari Richardson, who missed uh, the Tokyo Games, asked why Russian skater can compete after failing a, a, a doping test. This one here by um, James C. McKinley Jr. for New York Times. It's a really good article I read yesterday. Shakira Richardson, who missed the Tokyo Games, asked why a Russian skater can compete after failing a doping test. Now, um, so it came out on the 14th. It was updated on the 15th. The update was that Camila Valieva's sample had three substances sometimes used to help the heart. Three substances sometimes used to help the heart. The additional two are not banned, but they are associated with... Um, uh, giving you more endurance. The one substance is banned. Okay, so, and let me see if we can get to, okay, that's just all they have in here on it. Okay, this one right here is linked to this article here because I read so many of them. On this one, I read so many, uh, I read so many articles a day. Camila Valieva's sample included three substances sometimes used to help the heart. Only one is banned. Three substances sometimes used to help the heart. Only one is banned. Okay. Yeah. This one here, Tariq uh, Panja, February 15th. A sample provided by a teenage Russian figure skater to an anti-doping laboratory before the Beijing games included three substances that are sometimes used to help the heart. According to a document filed in arbitration in her arbitration hearing on Sunday, the skater Camila Valieva was cleared to continue competing in the games by a panel of arbitrators on Monday, February 14th, even though a drug found in her system Trimetazidine is on the list of drugs banned by global anti-doping officials on the list of drugs banned by global anti-doping officials. Valieva 15 provided the sample in December. It was December 25th. She took the drug test. They found out like February 13th that she failed the drug test. Why did, why did it take a month and a half? But Russian anti-doping officials said they had learned of her positive result only last week. Why did it take a month and a half? It doesn't take that long. They got Shikari's results in about two weeks. But according to documents reviewed by the New York Times and confirmed by someone who took part in the hearing, the Stockholm laboratory that carried out the examination of Valieva's sample also found evidence of two other substances that can treat the heart 
but are not on the banned list. Two other substances that can treat the heart, but are not on the banned list. Camila Valieva even listed them, hypoxin and L-carnitine on a doping control form. The presence of trimethazidine on Valieva's system may have been a mistake Russian and Olympic officials have suggested, but the discovery of several substances in the sample of an elite athlete, especially one as young as Valieva, who's 15 years old, was highly unusual, according to a prominent anti-doping official. Quote, uh, Travis Tigart, who we quoted yesterday, executive of the United States Anti-Doping Agency, the US, uh, the US ADA, Travis Tigart said, quote, it's a trifecta of substances, two of which are allowed and one that is not. He added that the benefits of such a combination, quote, seemed to be aimed at increasing endurance reducing fatigue and promoting greater efficiency in using oxygen. He said the benefits of such a combination of these three drugs, quote, seem to be aimed at increasing endurance, reducing fatigue, and promoting greater efficiency in using oxygen, end quote. Okay, so read the rest of this uh, article here from the New York Times. Camila Valieva's sample included three substances sometimes used to help the heart. Only one is banned. Okay, now, um, okay, and read the rest of this, uh, read the rest of this article here from uh, Yahoo Sports. Not a great deal of similarity, quote unquote, between Shakari Richardson and Valieva cases. All right. Yes, yeah, yeah, Valieva getting a whole lot more breaks than Shakari got. Okay, so read that one. Now, and then also the clip from uh the Black News Channel, uh from uh uh Sharon uh Sharon Show, Sharon Reed. Uh, Olympics called out for double standards, apparent racial bias. That's from February 16, 2022, Black News Channel. This on a YouTube channel. Uh, okay. And that's, uh, all right. So February, uh, I want to get to some history here. Uh, February 7th, 1926, Dr. Carter G. Woodson uh, launched Negro History Week. This was the first Negro History Week, second week in February. I'm also going to do a brief overview of the online class that I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Well, on Saturdays, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. So... Um, and I've written I've written an article also about the origins of um, African American History Month as well. 
So it's at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Just click on, um, just click on uh, read articles. Let me pull up this piece here from the uh, Zen Education Project. All right, February 7th, 1926. You know, there's an episode of Good Times where uh, I think it's the one with Black Jesus. I think it's that episode. And uh, Michael talks about Negro uh, Black History Week because it, it was before 1976 when it was extended to a month. Uh, on February 7th, 1926, Dr. Carter G. Woodson initiated the first uh, Negro History Week, which led to Black History Month to extend and deepen the study and scholarship on African-American history. He also studied the accomplishments and achievements of African people throughout the diaspora, including on the continent of Africa. Um, to extend and deepen the study of scholarship on African-American history all year long. Because Dr. Woodson said that we need to study our history year round, not just one month out of the year or one week out of the year. Now, in an essay on the history and purpose of the commemoration, including why Dr. Woodson chose the month of February, they have a clip here. Um, the story of Claudette Colvin is one of many examples of the impact of Negro History Week, Black History Month. She refused to move on the Montgomery bus on March 2nd, 1955, inspired by the lessons in February, inspired by the lessons in February at her school. She said, I could not move. Claudette Colvin said, I could not move because history had me glued to the seat. It felt like the sojourner truth. It felt like sojourner truth's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder, and Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on another shoulder, and I could not move. Now, Doctor uh, Doctor Daryl Scott, Doctor Daryl Michael Scott, who's a friend of mine, a historian at history professor at Howard University, and I did an extensive interview with him uh, in 2021 where we talked about. Uh, the myth that the 13th Amendment led to mass incarceration. And we also talked about the uh, Ava DuVernay's book, uh, Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th and the flaws in that whole concept. Because the 13th Amendment is based upon the um, Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Mass incarceration is not related to the 13th Amendment ratified December 6, 1865. But very briefly here, Dr. Carter G. Woodson chose February um, for Negro History Week for reasons of tradition and reform. And it's commonly said that what Woodson selected February to accomplish the birthdays of two great Americans who played a prominent role in shaping black history, namely Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Lincoln's birthday is uh, February 12th and Douglass' birthday, his assumed birthday is February 14th. A lot of people know it as Valentine's Day, but that's also Fr Frederick Douglass' birthday. That's Frederick Douglass' assumed birthday, Okay. Um, so 
more importantly, he chose them for reasons of tradition. Since Lincoln's assassination in 1865, um, the African-American community, along with other Republicans, have been celebrating uh, uh, Lincoln's birthday. And also, we had been celebrating uh, the birthday of Frederick Douglass as well. Okay. And let me pull this up here. We'd also been celebrating the, the, the birthday of, of Frederick Douglass also. Uh, so that second week of February contained um, celebrations that we were already participating in. So Dr. Woodson in his brilliance put the new uh, cultural celebration in that period of time since celebrations were already going on. Okay, hold on, let me pull this up. All right. Here's a slide from one of the classes uh, that I teach. So why was Black History Month? Let me go back, okay. So why was Black History Month created? Start out as Negro History Week. Now, Dr. Carter G. Woodson was the co-founder of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, September 9th, 1915, in Chicago. And he created uh, what's known as a SALA today, Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. But he created it after attending a symposium, a three-week symposium in, uh, that took place in Chicago that commemorated uh, the 50 years since the end of slavery, the end of the Civil War, and the 13th Amendment. And this uh, symposium had all types of exhibits and uh, lecturers, presenters, historians documenting what African-Americans had accomplished in those 50 years. So he got the idea to create an organization to study, preserve, document the accomplishments and achievements of African-Americans. Because he said, if, if, if these achievements are not documented and preserved, then they could be lost forever. And because he was a, uh, not just a historian, but also an educator, he understood that African-Americans did not know their history. So Woodson founded Negro History Week in 1926. He explained the reason behind the celebration in a pamphlet widely distributed months before the first celebration was to take place during the second week in February, 1926, in commemoration of Frederick Douglass um, and Frederick Douglass's and Abraham Lincoln's birthdays. He exclaimed that blacks knew, quote, practically nothing, end quote, about their history. African-Americans knew practically nothing about their history. He ultimately believed that African-Americans could benefit immensely from, from uh, knowledge of their past and accomplishments of their ancestors, from knowledge of their past and accomplishments of their ancestors. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So your thoughts create feelings, your feelings create actions and behaviors, your actions and behaviors create results. And, and the people's history and culture 
teaches them how to deal with the problems of the past in the present and the future to meet the needs of the community. Now, this is uh, Dr. Woodson's, probably his most famous book, Miseducation of the Negro, came out in 1933. Um, he also created the uh, Associated Publishers, Inc., which is a which is a publishing company. So he was publishing textbooks. He was publishing his books and textbooks, textbooks for for our school teachers to use in schools. This is what this brother was doing in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Now, Dr. Woodson argued that if the historical record was set straight and that if the history of African-Americans were studied along with the achievements of others in schools, not only would African-American youth develop a sense of pride and self-worth, but racism would be also abolished. Not only would African-American youth develop a sense of pride and self-worth, but racism would also be abolished because the, the way you treat a people is based upon what you, how you think about a people. How you think about a people is largely based upon what you've been taught about a people. What you've been taught about a people is largely based upon what you've read, seen, and heard about a people. So the images, the imagery, the movies, the music, the, 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 the books, the, the children's stories, the cartoons, this is all programmed. This is all programmed. Whatever is disseminated becomes imitated. Your thoughts create feelings. Your feelings create actions and behaviors. Your actions and behaviors create results. So when we have uh, music that dehumanizes us and calls us the N-word and things like this, this is programming. When you have movies like The Birth of a Nation, February 8th, 1915, and all the negative stereotypical images of African-Americans are depicted in the movie. And the Ku Klux Klan is shown as being the heroes who save white America from an uprising of former Union Negro soldiers because the movie takes place during slavery, civil war and reconstruction period of 1865, 1877. And the movie, The Birth of a Nation brought about the rejuvenation of the Ku Klux Klan. So Reverend William Joseph Simmons rejuvenates the Ku Klux Klan in October, basically October of 1915, uh, after seeing the movie, The Birth of a Nation. And it was, um, uh, Washington Post has a good article on uh, the Reverend William Joseph Simmons. Um, a preacher used Christianity to revive the Ku Klux Klan. This one right here. Whatever's disseminated becomes imitated. So this is why attacking negative stereotypical images of African-Americans in the media is so important because it can, is, is programming conditions people. The preacher who used Christianity to revive the Ku Klux Klan, the movie, the birth of a nation calls race riots in the streets. And we had enough sense to understand when we were under attack and we launched boycotts of the movie, the birth of a nation. 
Carlotta, uh, Charlotta Bass in California, who headed up the NAACP in California, she organized boycotts against it. William Monroe Trotter, who was up in Boston, he organized boycotts against the movie, The Birth of a Nation. We had enough sense to understand when we were under attack. And the movie, The Birth of a Nation, is based upon a novel by a man named Reverend, uh, um, Reverend Thomas Dixon. And the novel was called The Klansman. The movie started out as a novel. It was approaching midnight on October 6, 1915, when Methodist preacher, Reverend William Joseph Simmons, and at least 15 other men climbed Stone Mountain in Georgia. If you know anything about Stone Mountain in Georgia, you know Stone Mountain is the largest Confederate monument anywhere in the country. Stone Mountain. Stone Mountain in Georgia is the largest Confederate monument anywhere in the country. On, on Stone Mountain, it's a huge mountain, and on Stone Mountain, it has the uh, carvings, the reliefs of uh, General uh, Robert E. Lee, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, and uh, Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. Okay, this is what's, this is what's on uh, Stone Mountain. There's a big article from um, Smithsonian Mag, Smithsonian Institute, that talks about uh, Stone Mountain and what will come of it. I'm trying to pull that up here. Where is that one from uh, Smithsonian Institute? But anyway, oh, this one right here. This is what I want. What will happen to Stone Mountain, America's largest Confederate memorial? This one right here, SmithsonianMag.com, the Smithsonian Institute, their their their, uh, their website and their magazine, Smithsonian Magazine. Now, if you if, if, these are all things that I teach in the in the online classes that I teach, we go through all this type of information. This article is from August 22nd, 2027, of 2017, August 22nd, 2017. What will happen to Stone Mountain, America's largest Confederate memorial? Okay, and I wanna close this ad here. I close, okay. I want you to see what's on Stone Mountain. I've been to Stone Mountain and I've climbed to the top of Stone Mountain. They have a trailway where you can walk up Stone Mountain, you can climb up Stone Mountain and, um, it um, people use it for exercise, things like this, but there's also a cable car to take you up and down Stone Mountain. So this is what's on the side of Stone Mountain. These three traitors to the union, all three slave owners, General Robert E. Lee, who on the TV show, The Dukes of Hazard, the General Lee car that Bo and Luke Duke ride in and jump over ravines. That car is named after General Robert E. Lee. The car is named after a slave owner and a traitor to the union who took up arms to maintain slavery. On the top of the car, the flag is not the Confederate flag. It's the Confederate battle flag of General Robert E. Lee's army of Virginia. That's the flag that's on 
top of the General Lee car. There were three flags that flew over the Confederate States of America from 1861 to 1865. That flag that's on top of the General Lee car is not one of those flags that ever flew over the Confederate States of America. That's not the Confederate flag. That's the Confederate battle flag of General Robert E. Lee's army. Okay, so you have PG, you have um, Thomas Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. Okay, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. All three slave owners. This is what's on the side of Stone Mountain in Georgia right now. I'm not talking about 100 years ago. That's there right now. The largest Confederate monument anywhere in the country. Now, when you get to the top of Stone Mountain, there is a souvenir shop. In the souvenir shop, on all of the souvenirs, the keychains, the pennants, the hats, the mugs, all the all the souvenirs, they have these three traders to the union, these three slave owners. That's the that's the that's the the logo of Stone Mountain. They, they, they have more all it's just because when I when I got I didn't know there was a souvenir shop there. So I go into the souvenir shop. And it's like going back in time. Because I look at all the I look at all the souvenirs and I see these three slave owners on these three traders who committed treason against the union based upon Article three, Section three of the U.S. Constitution. And then I'm looking around in the souvenir shop and everybody is in there smiling and just buying stuff and everything. And I'm like, do y'all know who the hell these people are that are on these souvenirs? I ain't buying none of the souvenirs. I said, I'm not doing that. So if we go back and look at 1915, the birth of a nation, the same year that Dr. Carter G. Woodson founds the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, ASALA. The Reverend, the good Reverend, William Joseph Simmons, rejuvenates the Ku Klux Klan because the Klan had largely died out by 1915. A lot of the early members of the Klan were dead. The Ku Klux Klan was founded December 24th, 1865 on Christmas Eve. About a week after, about, well, about a week after the 13th Amendment was adopted, it was adopted, ratified December 6th, 1865 by Georgia, adopted December 18th, 1865. So a little more than a week later, the Klan is founded in Pulaski, Tennessee. It's founded as a fraternal organization. That's how it starts out. It was approaching midnight, October 16, 1915, when Methodist preacher, Reverend William Joseph Simmons, and at least 15 other men climbed Stone Mountain in Georgia. They built an altar. I don't, I don't know if they had a gallow with a hangman's noose like they had at the insurrection January 6th, but, you know, I'm not sure if they had one. They probably wish they had one. They built an altar, set fire to a cross, and took an oath of allegiance to the invisible empire and announced the revival of the Ku Klux Klan. This is the second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan, created by the Reverend William Joseph Simmons, who was inspired by the movie The Birth of a Nation. Talk about whatever is disseminated becomes imitated beneath a makeshift altar glowing in the flickering flames of the burning cross, they laid a U.S. flag, a sword, and a holy Bible. Quote, the angels 
that have anxiously watched the Reformation from its beginning, said the Reverend William Joseph Simmons, who declared himself imperial wizard, quote, must have hovered above Stone Mountain and shouted hosannas to the highest heavens, end quote. Last Wednesday on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King, a progressive, uh, uh, progressive faith groups held a march in Washington to combat racism and atone for the history of that prejudice. Now, um, okay, so they talk about, uh, you see, they show the Klan, mass Klan initiation ceremony at Stone Mountain. July 23rd, 1948. There's Stone Mountain again in Georgia. Restricting membership to white Christians, the Ku Klux Klan wore white robes to symbolize purity. Because the Klan, once again, is a fraternal organization. They have bylaws. There's an intake process, okay? There's a screening process. Just because you wore a white sheet and a hood did not mean you were a member of the Ku Klux Klan. They had a membership process. They had bylaws. They, 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 they were a fraternal organization. Just because you wore white sheets and hoods did not mean you were a member of the Klan. Restricting membership to white Christians, you had to be a Protestant, actually. You had to be a Protestant. They wouldn't let Catholics become Christian. They wouldn't let Catholics uh, join the Ku Klux Klan. And they wouldn't let Jews join the Ku Klux Klan either. They actually attacked Jews. Restricting membership to white Christians, the Klan wore white, white robes to symbolize purity, burned crosses to signify the light of Christ, quote unquote, the light of Christ, and picked selective scriptures from the Bible to preach white supremacy. The, invisibles, the invisible empire's comeback was aided by Hollywood's first blockbuster D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, which glamorized the Ku Klux Klan. The, the, the movie was so, the movie helped the, the Klan so, so much that oftentimes in newspaper ads for the movie The Birth of a Nation, the Ku Klux Klan would take out recruiting ads next to the ad for the movie The Birth of a Nation. This is how much that movie captivated America and helped the Ku Klux Klan. By the early 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan boasted 5 million members across the country and had infiltrated thousands of churches with its hateful doctrines. Read the rest of this article here. Okay. This is deep. So this, see, this shows the, the relationship between media and behavior. Media, ideology, conditioning, behavior results. The, the, the preacher who used Christianity to revive the Ku Klux Klan. This is uh, by Deneen L. Brown, who writes some good articles for the Washington Post, April 10th, 2018. This was six days after the 50th anniversary uh, of the commemoration of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Let's go back to this here, and I'm going to show you, uh, we'll cover, we'll deal quickly with some things we deal with in the online class. These are some of the things I deal with in the online class, but this is also, this part here is about Dr. Carter G. Woodson. So Dr. Woodson concluded, uh, Dr. Woodson argued that if the historical record was set straight 
and that if the history of African Americans were studied along with the achievements of others in schools, not only would black youth develop a sense of pride and self-worth, self-development, self-esteem, okay? But racism would be abolished. Dr. Woodson concluded, quote, let truth destroy the dividing prejudice of nationality and teach universal love without distinction of race, merit, or rank with sublime enthusiasm and heavenly vision of the great teacher. Let us help men rise above the race hate of their age unto the altruism of a rejuvenated universe, unto the altruism of a rejuvenated universe. And there's a good book on um, Dr. Carter G. Woodson by Dr. Uh, uh, Payroll Dagbovi, who's a history professor at uh, Michigan State University. This book right here, Carter G. Woodson in Washington, D.C., The Father of Black History, by Dr. Payroll Dagbovi, one of the best books on Woodson. Dr. Dr. Daryl Michael Scott, he has a good book on Woodson also. Uh, uh, Daryl Michael Scott used to be a, a national president of ASALA, okay, Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which is the governing body of Black History Month. And there's an annual theme each year for Black History Month. There's been an annual theme since 1928. This year's annual theme is dealing with... Um, uh, blacks and health and wellness. Okay. Uh, blacks and health and wellness. And uh, we'll pull this up also here. All right, let's go to this here. So We'll go to that next. All right, now Negro History Week was the first major achievement in popularizing black history and was unique in that it focused on African-American youth. It focused on African-American youth. Dr. Woodson realized that the miseducation of African-Americans began in their homes communities, and elementary schools. Dr. Woodson's vision of Negro History Week was optimistic, strategic, and long-term. He wanted this modest week, uh, he wanted this modest week-long celebration to serve as a stepping stone toward the gradual introduction of black history into the curricula of all levels of the U.S. education educational system, of all levels of the U.S. educational system. And, 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 and Dr. Woodson taught that the history of African-Americans needed to be taught in every school across the country, not just schools that we were the majority of the student body in. Every school across the country, he said the history of African-Americans had to be taught. Dr. Woodson hoped that Negro History Week would evolve into Negro History Year as he affirmed from time to time. Dr. Woodson consistently instructed those observing the week that they needed to diligently prepare for the celebration months in advance. Dr. Woodson took this stuff seriously. He dedicated his life to this. 
Dr. Woodson instructed those observing Negro History Week that they needed to diligently prepare for the celebration months in advance and that after mid-February, they needed to continue acknowledging the role of African descendants in world history. He said, this is not a one-week affair. This is a cultural celebration during that one week, but this is something that we must continue throughout the year. Quote, Negro History Week should be a demonstration of what has been done in the study of the Negro during the year and at the same time as a demonstration of greater things to be accomplished, end quote, Dr. Woodson instructed school teachers. He also said, a subject which receives attention one week out of the 36 will not mean much to anyone, end quote, because he was saying that the, that the second week in February is a period of time that students should be demonstrating and showing what they have been studying year round. He's saying the history of African-Americans has to be taught year round. Read Dr. Perro Dak Bovey's book on, on Carter G. Woodson. Carter G. Woodson in Washington, D.C., The Father of Black History, um, pages 100 to 102. It's a deep book. Okay, now, the um, these are some of the things that we deal with in the online class. That That's some information from... Um, uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement in Black Power, 1865 to 1960. That's these two classes. So I have hundreds of slides. That's uh, from that one. Yeah. 1865 to 1968. Okay. I teach that one on Sundays. On Saturdays, uh, I teach uh, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what it didn't teach you in school. And we deal with thousands of years of history and we deal with uh, what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place as well. So we can go through and look at this history chronologically and see cause and effect and go through and look at this um, information step by step. OK, go through and look at this information step by step. I'm, I'm going to go back to the slideshow in just a second. And, and deal with some of the information we deal with in understanding the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, you can register for both of these classes at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. I do a PowerPoint presentation. As you see, we have book references, articles, video clips. Um, and we deal with thousands of years of history. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime, okay? We have, you, you can uh, register for the classes separately, but we have them in the bundle pack, which is a value pack. Uh, the class is on sale $80, regularly $130, okay? Uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, I teach that on Sundays, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So as soon as you register, uh, we have some archive content. You can watch the class. We just did this past weekend. We had a great class this past weekend. We dealt with some uh, recent archaeological discoveries because that's one of the things we look at in the class. So next class is Saturday, February 19th, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Click here to register here. 
And then um, on Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. These classes just started up. So as soon as you register, you can watch the class we just did this past weekend. Next class is Sunday, February 20th. This class is on sale $80, regularly $130. And we look at history. We start in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. We go through and look at history chronologically. Each class we analyze about a 15, 20-year period of history to understand what happened to us after slavery ended, after Reconstruction, how we got to where we are now to understand where we need to go from here, what needs to happen. So we deal with the uh, we deal with the Louisiana Purchase, the Haitian Revolution. We talk about that some, which caused the Louisiana Purchase to take place. We deal with the um, Missouri Compromise of 1820, uh, Texas winning its independence in 1836. Uh, we deal with the uh, Mexican American War 1846 1848, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo 1848. The U.S. gets the land that makes up uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Utah, and Nevada because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, we deal with uh, the Compromise of 1850, the Compromise of 1850, which uh, uh, includes the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. That's part of the Compromise of 1850. And uh, we deal with all this history chronologically. Okay, we deal with the Civil War, Reconstruction, uh, World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. But this is Dr. David M. Hotep's book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And his book deals with the African presence in the Americas uh, dating back at least 51,700 years ago. And he's a friend of mine. I've interviewed him a number of times. Some of you have seen the interviews I've done with him. Page 14 of his book deals with the archaeological discovery made by Dr. Albert Goodyear. In uh, 2004, Dr. Albert Goodyear is an archaeologist at the University of South Carolina. They found 13 different types of evidence thoroughly documenting the African presence of the Khoisan in the territory we call South Carolina dating back at least 51,700 years ago. This is long before the Clovis culture founded in New Mexico that puts Homo sapiens uh, in North America about 13,000, 14,000 years ago. They found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, footprints, and lava, genetic M174D haploid groups dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeletons, structures, and tools. They found 13 different types of evidence fairly documenting an African presence in this country going back at least 51,700 years ago. His book is backed up by 713 footnotes and seven peer review articles also. Read this article here about uh, Dr. Albert Goodyear. This is from ScienceDaily.com. It's about his discovery. It's called New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. This is from November 18, 2004 from ScienceDaily.com. And this deals with, the discovery deals with the Khoisan who have the oldest DNA, the oldest DNA on the planet. They're derisively, derogatorily called Bushmen. They're the ancestors that I knew in the twilight they go all around the world. And they were here also in the land we call the United States of America. This is before Native Americans come into existence. African people were here in this land we call the United States of America tens of thousands of years before Native Americans come into existence. So, so when we talk about African American History Month, Black History Month, we have to deal with the totality of our history. And 
when you look at some of the annual themes going back to 1928, some of those themes dealt with the continent of Africa. And Dr. Woodson didn't just talk about studying our history in this country, but he talked about understanding um, African global history, the, 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 the history of African people throughout the diaspora, but also on the continent of Africa. In October 2012, genetic study published in Science Magazine found that the Khoisan in Southern Africa are the oldest ethnic group of modern humans with their ancestral line originating about 100,000 years ago, with their ancestral line originating about 100,000 years ago. The Khoisan, formerly called by the derogatory term Bushmen, are genetically unique and no other currently known population have separated so early from our common modern human ancestor, according to the report. The Khoisan lived mainly in Southern Africa in territory spanning uh, Botswana, Namibia, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. They are largely divided into two groups, hunters and gatherers, the, Sa the Sans people, and keepers of livestock, the Khoikhoi. The Khoisan languages include the distinctive click sounds that are not found in the languages of their neighbors. The distinctive click sounds that are not found in the languages of their neighbors. AtlantaBlackStar.com is a good article, five ethnic groups that prove the first humans were black. Now, um, this is a clip of uh, Dr. David M. Hotep on WKRP in Cincinnati, Channel 5. And if we look at this here, okay, so this archaeological discovery, this deals with, on the Greek island of Crete, um, stone tools that date back 130,000 years ago were found over the course of two summers on the Greek island of Crete, which seems to push Mediterranean sea voyaging uh, back 100,000 years. This is causing the scientists to rethink everything. Crete has been an island for more than five year, million years, meaning the tool makers must have arrived by boat. So it seems to push the history of Mediterranean voyaging back more than 100,000 years, specialists in Stone Age archaeology say. This is Thomas Heraklion, uh, the lost city of Egypt. There have been a few lost cities found uh, recently, actually, the past 15 years or so. This is a discovery from 2013 that was revealed in 2013. Uh, they found uh, 150, 150 feet beneath the Bay of Abu Kir uh, off Egypt's sea. They found 64 ships, 16 foot tall statues, 700 anchors. This is an article from uh, news.yahoo.com. Sunken Egyptian city reveals 1200 year old secrets. This is from April 30th, 2013. These are some of the statues that they found at the bottom of the sea. All right, um, let me see here very quickly. Okay, so we deal with, so in this class, we deal with the 800 year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors. We deal with thousands of years of history, what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. We deal with ancient Kemet, the Nile Valley region of Africa. Uh, we deal with understanding the transatlantic slave trade. We deal with the Middle Passage, the role that Christopher Columbus played also. Um, we look at different, civilizations we look at ancient civilizations uh 
uh, Abyssinia, Ta-Nehisi, Nubia, ancient Kemet, things like this. Uh, we look at Carthage. Um, we look at Ghana, Songhai, Mali. Look at the role Christopher Columbus played. Uh, and we go through and look at this history chronologically to see what leads up to uh, the transatlantic slave trade taking place also. Okay. And let me see here. If we look at... Um, so there's something interesting. So we deal with uh, Freemasonry as well. And uh, the, the teachings from ancient Kemet and the symbolism that's infused in the Freemasonry, like the Tekken, coming from the story of Asar set in Heru, the resurrection story of Asar and the Washington Monument as a Tekken. Uh, we know that there were at least 1,200 Tekken new, approximately 1,200 Tekken new, uh, for plural, built in ancient Kemet. Kemet, one of the original names for Egypt, meaning land of the blacks. But there are only about a dozen today, some, somewhere between seven to 12 today in Egypt. Many of the Tekkenu removed from Egypt are in now in Istanbul, Turkey, London, France. I mean, not London, England, Paris, France, Berlin, Germany, New York, New York, Rome, Italy, Vatican City, and elsewhere throughout the world. The Tekkenu are now called obelisks by their new owners and few know their origin or that they symbolize the resurrection of the African King Asar, the African King Asar. When you study Star Wars, Star Wars is a version of that retelling of that story of Asar and fighting against uh, Asar and Set and Heru uh, avenging his father. Okay. Um, when you look at uh, George Lucas, who created Star Wars, um, George Lucas had a teacher named um, uh, Bill. Uh, he had a teacher uh, named Joseph Campbell and Joseph Campbell taught George Lucas about myths. OK, one of the myths he taught him about. Was Os um, about Osiris and Isis and Horus or Asar are set in Heru. And the brother Set, who ends up killing his brother Asar, and Asar's death is avenged by his son Heru, who the Greeks called Horus. The mythology of Star Wars with George Lucas, the struggle between heroes and villains and the influence of a higher force are the essence, uh, are the essence of mythology and resonate within all cultures, providing storytellers with a natural framework for spinning tales. This was a, there's an interview that Bill Moyers did in 1999 with George Lucas about Star Wars and about myths and things like this. Now, when we look at Freemasonry, the word Mason is derived from the Latin words mass and sun. Mason means child of light and expresses the desire to pursue light which is a metaphor for the sun, which symbolizes knowledge. The term child of light or sons and daughters of light was first used to identify students who had completed 42 years of study in the temples of ancient Kemet. Many Masonic temples were modeled after the temples of ancient Kemet, places where light or knowledge was imparted in a series of, step, in a series of steps or degrees. If you read pages 18 and 32 of Egypt on the Potomac by Tony Browder. And Browder's a brilliant brother. I've interviewed him a number of times. And this is one of the books we use in the class also, Egypt on the Potomac. 
You don't have to buy any of these books to follow along in class, but this is one of the ones we use in class, Egypt on the Potomac. So the concept of liberal arts colleges comes from ancient Kemet, comes from the temples. Uh, when you read uh, Stolen Legacy by George G.M. James, he deals with this and uh, the, the trivium and the quadrivium, the seven liberal arts, the rhetoric and the logic and arithmetic, things like this. Masonic temples are considered houses of light or temples of learning. The term Mason or child of light is a direct reference to the highest degree of the comedic education system. The 33 degrees of instruction within masonry represent a fraction of the 360 degrees of instruction that, comp that comprise the comedic system of education, yet with less than 10% of the wisdom of ancient Kemet, Freemasons have held positions of influence and power throughout the world for over 200 years. And then when you deal with the Knights Templar, who are founded uh, 1118 AD, right around the time of the Second Crusade, the Knights Templar are studying the teachings that the Moors, the African Moors, take into Europe, coming from the Nile Valley region of Africa. This is why we have to look at this history chronologically. So in this class where we do with thousands of years of history, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school, we go through and look and see how this knowledge goes from the Nile Valley region of Africa into Europe. And we, we're going to see it go around the world, but it goes into Europe and we're going to see it come to the U.S. in the colonies with the with the with the the founders of the colonies and in the, the, the Masons and the Declaration of Independence and 50 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence with Freemasons, things like this. But what we taught Europeans when the Moors go into Europe in 711 AD, what we taught Europeans is going to come at the kickers in the behind. This is why I say I wish we had never taught them. I think it's slide number 147 or something like that. But this is why I say I wish we had never taught them when we get to Tariq Ibn Ziyad. That, oh, it's slide 184. I'm sorry. I have like probably about three between these two classes, probably somewhere around 400 slides. 711 AD, the Moors going to the Iberian Peninsula, wasn't called Spain and Portugal then. General Tariq Ibn Ziyad in 711 AD crossed the Straits and disembarked near a rock promontory, which from that day has borne his name, Jebel Tariq, Tariq's Mountain or Gibraltar, also called the Rock of Gibraltar, which is named after an African man, a Moor, Tariq Ibn Ziyad. And then we see the, we see the Moors, they're gonna conquer the Vandals and the Visigoths and settle, settle, in the southern settle in the southern portion of the Iberian Peninsula and uh, call it Al-Andalus. In the aftermath of these brilliant struggles, thousands of Moors flooded into the Iberian Peninsula. So eager were they to come that some are said to have uh, floated over on tree trunks. Tariq Ibn Ziyad himself, at the conclusion of his illustrious military career, retired to the distant east. We are informed to spread the teachings of Islam. There is really no need to speculate on the ethnicity of these early invaders of the uh, uh, or uh, of the conquest period. 
primary Christian sources relating to the conquest, particularly the uh, uh, Primera Chronica General of Alfonso X, make the following observation regarding the Moors. Quote, their faces were black as pitch. The handsomest among them was as black as a cooking pot. The handsomest among them was as black as a cooking pot. This is uh, St. Maurice, who, who was a Moor as well. It was a martyr. And he was worshipped as the patron saint of Germany. Because the concept of patron saints really comes from the Netaru. Okay, different patron saints were said to watch over different groups of people and different patron saints had different attributes. So St. Nicholas, who was an African as well, was an African saint. And this is the saint that the mythological character Santa Claus is based upon. Um, saint um, Center class in Dutch means St. Nicholas. Okay, and uh, center class was a religious figure amongst the Dutch and you see them worship in Holland. You see um, the uh, December 5th, you see the feast of uh, St. Nicholas. And these are, we, we get, these are things we go through and there were all this history in this uh, 10 week online course, ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay. How's everybody doing? How y'all like this type of information? Um, when we look at, so around December 5th, December 6th each year, early December, you'll see articles dealing with, um, center class. Okay. You'll see articles dealing with center class and Joata Piet. All right. Um, and let me see, we have this here in the, in the presentation, center class and Joata Piet. Uh, where the hell is it? It's in here somewhere. Okay. Um, I've got to find it. But anyway. So there's, um, you'll see these articles dealing with The celebration amongst um, those in Holland. And it's a Black Pete, Joachim Piet. Black Pete in the mythology is a Moor who was a slave to center class, okay? And they have this parade um, in, in the Netherlands they have the they have this parade and these white people um put on blackface and they uh put on you know, they put on costumes from like the 17th century this right here center class and joata piet Joata Piet means Black Pete. Why a holiday has me talking to my kids about blackface? Now, this takes place every year in Holland, okay? They dress up. Now, this person right here in the red and white is dressed up as center class. Center class among the Dutch 
was brought to the U.S. in the early 1700s, this religious figure, this religious figure, a center class, got transformed into the mythological secular figure of Santa Claus. Center class is Dutch for St. Nicholas. And you see them dressed as Moors around him, black face, red lipstick, Afro wigs, oftentimes gold hoop earrings. Okay. And when you read this article uh, by Tracy Brown Hamilton, December 4th, 2018, 